Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, we're going to collaborate with The Dr. Joe Show, of which I'm a co-host. This was an amazing episode, and I really wanted to share it with you in case you hadn't already heard it. Please enjoy. Would you please introduce our guest for tonight? Oh, of course, Dr. Joe. Tonight, Dr. Joe, Mark, we have Dr. Stephen Torje. Dr. Torje, MD, is a staff psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital, where he works in the emergency department with the acute psychiatry service and as associate director in the Transitional Age Youth Clinic. In these roles, he provides direct clinical care to patients as well as supervise and teach psychiatry residents and fellows. He is an instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and serves on various diversity and selection committees for the psychiatry residency program. Dr. Torje is trained in both general and child and adolescent psychiatry with a private practice at North Shore Mines, north of Boston. He serves on the board of directors for the New England Council of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. His clinical and research interests include transitional age youth, minority mental health, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and anxiety disorders. He has appeared on CNN, Headline News Network, Television, and BBC Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Welcome, Dr. Stephen Torje. It's so nice to have you here on the Dr. Joe Show. Thanks so much, Dr. Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's uh, it's been a great week, and uh, I'm really I've really been looking forward to uh, to chatting with you guys. Yeah, me too. You're doing some really really important, interesting work. I wonder whether whether you could just explain what transitional age youth is, and the reason I want to say that is because we've been doing different shows on the word transitional, which I think is a different genre. So tell us about transitional age youth. Absolutely. I mean, the way I think about it, transitional age youth or TAY for abbreviation, it really refers to bridging adolescence with adulthood or young adulthood. And I tend to refer to that as 18 to 26 years old. 26, wow. I'm surprised. How did we get so old? <laughs> well, it seems like uh, an older age, but the reality is, I mean, 26 is when most people uh, start going off their parents' insurance and uh, get on their own insurance plan. And, you know, the, the brain really doesn't stop developing until uh, the mid to late 20s at most when we're looking at the frontal lobe. And there's just a lot happening developmentally within this age group. We hear that, you know, 18 years old, oh, we're, we're an adult, we're gonna join the military, we're gonna be living on our own and legally we can do whatever we want. But the reality is from what I've seen clinically and what we know socially, um, we're still trying to figure things out. It's it's very true, but the, the, it's really interesting that you mentioned the, the insurance part, because was that, was that part of the criteria years ago? Because when I was training, there wasn't that 26-year limit. Yeah, I mean, not, not really. It's just that uh, when you look at the literature, um, you'll see some people define this transition a little bit differently. But from what I've seen clinically, um, in terms of where people are developmentally, that's about kind of where where we put that. 
Um, but I think that like in, in many ways you can see development continuing even beyond that. Well, that's, that's for sure. I mean, we certainly are, are evolving and changing and adapting all the time, but I remember being, you know, 18, 19, 20, and there definitely were very different pressures and concerns and, you know, all these years later. So what are you seeing? What's, what's happening in our kids? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think what we're seeing is that, um, what, what we're seeing is that now, even when you look at societally, the the average age that people are kind of launching from the nest is increasing. Uh, the average age of marriage in the United States has increased over the, the past several years. And a lot of people aren't getting married until, you know, mid to late twenties, whereas before it was early twenties, um, you know, really what we've focused on uh, within transitional age youth is not just your standard psychiatric disorders, but, you know, looking at this phenomenon of a failure to launch, uh, which kind of describes, you know, young adults that get stuck, right? They might still be living with their parents. Um, they might be um, struggling to kind of launch from their home environment to, to really form their own independence. And this is, this is really a distinct developmental entity. And a lot of people haven't really thought about age 18 to 26 is a distinct developmental entity, but it really is. Um, and it really deserves its own set of milestones. Agreed. So failure to launch, um, is there any correlation between what we call helicopter parenting and the failure to launch? I think that there's an association, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up, Dr. Joe, because um, families can be very much involved in helping uh, young adults and youth in general. And what we see that is that people are quick to blame the individual for this kind of issue. Um, but the, the reality is, is that oftentimes it's a family-based issue. And, you know, just being a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist as well, I try to screen for all sorts of disorders, ADHD, cannabis use disorder, uh, depression, autism spectrum. And of course, we always want to do that to try to figure out, okay, what's going on that's making it hard to find a job or to be engaged in any kind of um, training or education. And in addition to that, we have to look at other factors, um, such as, uh, you know, the family system. And, and as you said, helicopter parenting, things like that. Sometimes when we do too much for our, our kids, we end up overly accommodating. And that accommodation uh, makes some people less likely to be able to do it on their own. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, again, it's not about blame. I mean, it's just, if, if you're, my concern is if, if you are basically sending a message to your kids, you need me here to protect you, to be hovering over you, to be sure that everything's okay, the interpretation may be for the kid, I'm just not capable enough to do that. I'm not strong enough to do that. I can't do that on my own. Is, is that a fair assumption? Absolutely. I mean, and I see this all the time uh, in my practice where parents are, are doing their best to try to help um, the young adult. And 
at the same time, they're inadvertently, um, you know, sort of contributing to this, this pattern of being stuck. And so I try to do a lot of parent guidance work where we're not just working on, um, hey, how do we get you a job or how do we get you through college? But how do we actually help parents to motivate their kids to reach their goals? And um, how do we think about this um, as, a, as a developmental milestone um, and not just as, oh, yeah, you're 18 now, so uh, you should be able to to do whatever, graduate high school and, and kind of move on in your life. Goes further back, doesn't it? One of the things that that I say to parents is it is much more rewarding to be amazed at who your child is than disappointed in who they are not. Giving the parents an option and an encouragement to just really look at who their kid is, because they're going to be amazed. I mean, these kids are amazing, but but it is such an interesting pressure on kids these days. I mean. It is. And, and the pandemic just really, I think, crushed a lot of young adults and, and transitional age youth were particularly hit hard uh, with this in terms of elevated rates of depression and anxiety, uh, in terms of uh, increasing substance use. And I, the reason I think this is really an interesting age group um, is not just because it's bridging adolescence with adulthood, but because like, if you look at most psychiatric disorders, like the majority of them are onsetting right around the age of 15 to 24. That's where you start to begin to see these problems. And I think that we have an opportunity to really intervene and, and make a big difference in people's lives if we recognize when a lot of these issues start to happen. And, um, you know, I, I think for some people, it's kind of hard to kind of wrap their minds around like, you know, what what is really going on here? What am I referring to with transitional age youth? And, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about like sort of a composite of a, of a, you know, a bunch of different patients that I've kind of like blended together into like one patient, but he really represents uh, sort of what I see. Um, so I don't know if you want me to tell you about him, but we could just call him Danny. And Danny is about 23 years old. Uh, he lives at home with his parents and he dropped out of college. Uh, he smokes marijuana most of the day. He plays video games often and he feels depressed and unmotivated. And he's not engaged in any sort of employment, uh, education or training. And he seems stuck. And kind of what, what I typically would refer to this as is, is sort of a failure to launch, but it's a complex presentation where what you see is a constellation of factors such as not being in school or work, having some sort of dependency, usually on parents, having social isolation, um, seemingly little or no resilience. And then people tend to have certain comorbidities associated with that. Maybe it's ADHD, OCD, uh, depression, anxiety. And as you said, Dr. Joe, um, parents might be a little bit helicoptery, right? Kind of accommodating, if you will. And there seems to be low motivation. And that's that's typically what I've been seeing. Looking back on this, are is there a history of any of these kids being more bullied or teased as young kids in school? Or what about let's start with that? 
There definitely can be, you know, and that's kind of what we want to do when we think about coming up with a differential diagnosis when a patient like this shows up in my clinic is trying to think about, hey, let's first we have to explore the differential diagnosis, you know, put on our, our psychiatrist hat, our clinician hat and think about what what's happening. Right. And bullying um, is certainly there uh, in childhood often, because if you have an underlying psychiatric illness that you've been dealing with for years, maybe a learning disability, um, maybe you have um, sort of a neurodevelopmental disorder where there's certain social uh, skills that are impaired, you're more likely to be picked on because you're going to be a little bit of an odd duck, right? Um, in elementary school, middle school, and being picked on can lead to certain self-esteem issues. So that, that's, that's one of the factors um, that we definitely look at. We, when I was working at Castle with them, these were adolescents with substance use issues, we found the majority of them had been bullied or teased. And we also okay. found that the majority of them, way more than the national average, had IEPs, individual educational plans or 504 plans that preceded any substance use. So we started thinking, is it that we uncovered a vulnerability or did we actually create one? Because the kids may have seen themselves as broken and less valuable. Is that part of what's happening in our kid? Because Danny, Danny drops out of school. Yeah, yeah. And that is quite interesting that you guys have found that because I think there's definitely a parallel process there. Um, and you know, when you are different in some way uh, or have sort of, a, you know, a, a mental health issue that you're dealing with um, and you're not feeling empowered to get the help that you need, um, sometimes that can result in, in being victimized and uh, that might lead you to, to cope with it in certain ways that are maladaptive, you know, through substance use. But, you know, in other cases I've seen, people aren't bullied. Uh, they're just um, struggling with something else. And after a while, they're starting to notice, you know, they get through their IEP, they're getting all this help throughout school with their IEPs, their 504s. And then all of a sudden, um, they start to notice that their peers are, are moving on, they're getting internships in college and high school, they're no longer just working at the local grocery store, they're starting to get internships related to a, a passion a field of interest. And then that eventually leads to a job and getting your own apartment. And some of the transitional age youth are not necessarily getting that. And don't get me wrong, not all transitional age youth are dealing with failure to launch. That That is just one phenomenon that I have seen a lot of that I've focused on in my clinic. And it's a universal thing. Like we don't just see the failure to launch in the US. Like in Japan, they call it uh, hakikomori. In Italy, it's bambocioni. In uh, England, they call it NEAT or KIPPERS. NEAT stands for not engaged in um, employment, education, or training. And KIPPERS is kids in parents' pockets eroding retirement savings. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fishy to me. Um, sorry, that was a KIPPER joke. Um, you know, so, um, so, so there's the failure to launch part. But that is, that is that the sort of the extreme side of the transitional age youth difficulty, failure to launch? I think that, it, yeah, I think it is. It's, it's one of those things that just kind of happens, right? And, and parents and people are looking for like 
one diagnosis to latch on to. Oh, you know, it's depression. As soon as we cure the depression, we're going to fix this issue. And, you know, this young adult is going to become independent and find their passion. But the reality is that there's, there's so much else going on there um, that we have to think about everything else. And we have to think about, you know, what small changes can be made and what what bigger changes can be made in addition to doing the standard things that we do as psychiatrists, in addition to just, you know, basic individual therapy and medication management, we have to think about other ways to, to solve this issue. And, and what about on, on the perhaps less extreme side, what about kids who are, you know, graduating from high school, going to college, what what are the transitions that those kids are facing? I mean, they're leaving home, they're in a new environment. What's going on with them? I I think, Dr. Joe, they're dealing with a lot of pressure too. Um, and I think it's getting harder and harder uh, to feel successful with the way things are going with, you know, the amount of, of um, debt that people are in, um, the cost of getting a four-year degree, uh, it's just astronomical, the cost of living uh, in, in certain places. It, it just takes a lot um, to be able to uh, to get your own place. And so a lot of these kids, you know, if they do end up having uh, some underlying mental health issues like depression, anxiety, uh, they're, they're going to have some trouble also sometimes accessing care. Um, when we're in college, many of them are going off to college in this age group. There may not even be access to a psychiatrist, um, and many of them may not even have a primary care physician because they're in a different area for college than where they live. And then let alone trying to find a psychiatrist, uh, a lot of colleges might have um, student campus mental health, but oftentimes they're spread very thin and they can't, they, they just literally cannot see everybody that needs it. So they're left to their own devices to try to find um, a psychiatrist. So there's a lot of systems of care and barriers to access issues. And there's during the pandemic, you know, 55%, uh, this was one of the surveys that they did, 55% um, of a lot of these youth didn't know where to go for help with their mental health um, during the pandemic. And so that's, that's kind of what intensified a lot of, a lot of issues as well. You've mentioned the pandemic a couple of times now. What what do you think that was about? Why? I mean, I know what the pandemic was, but why do you think it was so tough on these kids? Well, I think, you know, despite from a physical standpoint, it really affecting older folks, you know, medically more. I think that young adults, you know, are up against a lot of milestones that they're trying to achieve, right? They're trying to figure out what they want to do in life. Um, they're trying to figure themselves out personally, professionally. Uh, they're trying to figure out their identities a little bit more, and they're turning increasingly to their peer group for social support rather than family and parents. And they're all trying to do this at a time when they're just trying to become independent. And so I think with the pandemic, uh, that really took away a lot of their social uh, connections and their social capital. Um, trying to do classes from Zoom every day, 
uh, being told that you can't hang out with your uh, with your friends unless it's in very, very small groups and, and not getting a, a real college experience. Um, and, and that's for like the average young adult, but let alone if you had a pre-existing mental health condition uh, and then had the pandemic on top of that, that only intensified it further. And I think it contributed to a lot of resilience now that we've gotten through it uh, and gotten people vaccinated, but it, it was a pretty rough road for a few years. Well, a, I'd like to think that it at least threw a light on the normality of mental health, you know, that it's, it's okay to ask for help. It makes sense to get depressed, get anxious, get angry without it having to be pathology. You know, people get some help. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think people did get some help. They, I think it destigmatized in some ways the need for mental health. And we saw like a, just a surge of telehealth psychiatry companies, you know, exploding. And um, I think it normalized working from home a little bit, uh, especially for, um, you know, for, for men. Uh, and this allowed for, um, you know, a, a change in the way that we view things in, in terms of work-life balance. So I think there were some silver linings to it all. Um, but, you know, we still have a long way to go. I agree. I think there were some absolute silver linings. We had Dr. Dr. Faber on from MGH talking about COVID and how the timing was just remarkable, how here we are finally normalizing mental health at a time where we don't have enough mental health workers to, to manage it. So timing is everything. Mark, I'm just wondering, what, what do you think? You, you have some kids in this age group. I do. So I'm taking it all in and I'm listening and, you know, and we guide folks with estate planning around this age category as well, you know, and a windfall of, of uh, inheritance at the age of 19 <clears throat> is not always optimal. Right. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking about those kids in that sandwich generation a lot, right. Where, you know, they're coming home and they can't really afford and they're in their parents' house and they're under their roof and they've attempted to be as independent as possible. But now they're coming back to almost taking a step back in the time machine and they're in their parents' house. I mean, you know, we've talked about the the ancillary dwellings and the ability to have like a separate structure that's not under the roof of the parents. And it's an affordable option to have that quasi-independence. But you know, the debt is, it's real and it, and it makes it really challenging for kids, but the, the purposefulness of things is what I was thinking about, you know, these, the, the kids that they start to lose their purpose, right. As it starts to slowly, you know, the failure to launch is kind of a slippery slope. It feels like Dr. Torje. Yeah, it is a slippery slope. And don't get me wrong, you know, people that are living at home with their parents in their 20s, like there's nothing wrong with that. And a right. lot of people do, like maybe well into their, you know, even 30 in certain communities. And that's not necessarily failure to launch. Um, what I'm talking about is people that are stuck, um, who are, are really stuck in, you know, living at home and, and not able to really have any sort of forward direction or independence right where they are are in a dependency state 
um, where they're not in school or work and, and they're, there's the accommodating parents. So they might be, you know, having their laundry done, you know, ordering pizza for them and, and, you know, they don't know how to, you know, pay any sort of bills or understand kind of how to do laundry or any of those things. And that, that is kind of more of a failure to launch thing. So it is a slippery slope, but the good news is, you know, there's, there's treatment for it and a multifaceted approach to treatment is key. And that's kind of what I like about this age group is, um, you know, you still get to really work with the families and the family work is critical, you know, collaboration with colleges, doing group work, doing parent guidance work for Danny, you know, we got him a lot of help and, um, you, you know, you have to fill the gaps for the grown child and, and, um, you know, be able to get them what they need. He's improved with, the, with a lot of the services in place through medications, through doing a little bit of a inpatient hospitalization, followed by some residential treatment. He did some group work. We also got him treatment for his substance use disorder uh, that he was able to get back to college um, and uh, do, do very well, actually. So he's doing pretty well now, but we had to really kind of reconceptualize the problem for him and understand like what it means to sometimes seemingly be doing well before and then have this, what appears to be like a regression later on. Regression. That's, that's the word I was looking for. What, what do you, what do you say to the primary care physicians out there that, you know, are, are first line of defense on this stuff, right? Yeah. I would say that like, you know, understand that like you need some developmental savvy and, and understand like things from a regression framework, right? You can't just be a hammer and see everything as a nail. Like we're all different. And, um, there's there's got to be sort of a deeper dive into what might be going on in a young adult's life and you know have compassion to try to understand um their background the primary care doctor has got to be able to to destigmatize things de-shame it um encourage things like social interaction and getting practical help and, and not just writing a script for prozac and saying come back in six months right like we gotta think about it more deeply than that i, I mean I, i'm you know, I, I think that there's there's many ways to look at, at, at development and i personally don't think that anything is static and i think we know right. that i think we know that we're always absorbing information but there's definitely a shift from the impulsive irrational limbic part of our brain that is absolutely more in charge of the adolescent brain to the prefrontal cortex in particular the more rational part of the brain that's able to, you know, solve problems, executing a plan and anticipating what will happen next. And it's, it's in that anticipation. And I think I found, I don't know whether you found this, Dr. Troget, but I found a lot of, of adolescents and transitional age youth are sort of balancing both of those where they've got this, this limbic part that's irrational, this prefrontal cortex, they're depressed, you know, the young brain is all about here and now. The older brain is about thinking about the future. And some kids can think about the future, but all they see is more here and now, as if nothing will change. And I think that is part of that depression and that feeling stuck. What do, what do you think about that, Dr. Torje? Yeah, I think, I think it really is, you know, and um, this, this stuckness, um, it, it does correlate with a lot of the, 
the critical tasks that are happening during this period. And, um, you know, going back to the question of like the, the development and being impulsive. I mean, this is the, the prime age group where like people are starting to put the pedal to the metal on the highway, right. When they're driving their car, how fast can I go? Right. Um, it reminds me of the time of my life. I was moving out of my parents' house and college dorms, you know, trying to find a community of friends and mentors. And there were a lot of things I was still trying to figure out, right? Like who I was, like who were my friends, um, how do I transition out of this role? How do I do things in terms of executive functioning? And I, I think that um, when you combine that with the fact that like there's a lot of unique challenges during this time period, um, it can set you up for depression if you're expecting to just have everything figured all out um, all at once when really what we need is time to uh, to work through this this phase. Is there a connection there that people with failure to launch have been beaten down and they think they're meant to make a decision and if they don't, there's nowhere for them to go. They should just just stay home and isolate and maybe no one will notice. I think some of that is there too. You know, they're just struggling with other things underneath on top of it. But I think there is that fundamental pressure that they're supposed to know what they want to do. And when I think with some of my patients, you know, who have this issue, they're telling me, oh, I want to be a police officer, but I also want to be potentially a pilot. And I'm like, well, well which is it? Because if you want to be a police officer, you know, you're going to need to, you know, to, to get certain physical training and, and you know, uh, get certain certifications, but if you're talking about wanting to be a pilot, you know, that's very different. Um, and I'm like, is he just saying that he wants to do these things because they're respected fields from what the common person will think, or does he really want to do these things? And so I have to think about that as well. You know, how, how much do people really want to do this or are they just not really sure? And what they need is more time to brainstorm and think about what their true passions are and how that aligns with their skill set. Well, I, I want people to know that I took six years after graduating college before I started medical school. You know, I mean, I, I had a career in theater. I was a writer. I did all sorts of things. Eventually, wound up working in a lab, and you know, that's that was the the path was to to be able to explore these things. And I I, I remember sitting on roof of a dorm with my best friend Adam at the time still my best friend and we both were looking out we were seniors in college and we both agreed we, we didn't want to live a life of what ifs what if I had done this what if I had had a theater career what if I had done this and then look back with these regrets so I think it's important for people to know that it's okay that you may not know exactly what you want to do right away. But I was hearing earlier, Dr. Joe, the hustle that uh, Dr. Torje had and, you know, the journey that he was on and, and made his way into the, the, the uh, penitentiary system and the needs were there, but the needs are in so many other places. And, you know, folks like yourself spend all this time in school. Are, are there other solutions and strategies that, are out there to gain more people into this field of like mental health helping, right? Where we can get to some of these people who 
may not know where to get services. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we need to start by normalizing um, the fact that, you know, you got to get help, you know, just like if you had, um, you know, a broken bone and you need to go get that repaired uh, or get surgery or get a cast, you know, when you have a mental health issue, you know, you want to be able to get that taken care of. Right. Uh, and so I think destigmatizing and normalizing seeking care for mental health issues is number one. And unfortunately, a lot of uh, young folks, it's it's still there. It's definitely a barrier, particularly for young men. Um, we're seeing that due to these internalized masculinity norms that are in place that like you can't show any sort of vulnerability. Uh, that's a big barrier to to getting care. So I, I think number one would be really decreasing the stigma. Uh, and I think people are starting to do that, but we still have a ways to go. And then there's also issues related to supply and demand of providers and the number of people seeking treatment. And we have to, to be able to get more comprehensive treatment and start collaborating, um, not only with, you know, hospitals, but with colleges doing more outreach. Uh, with mentorship organizations like Big Brothers, Big Sisters. I've done some talks for them as well um, to partner with people that may not necessarily be psychiatrists, but primary care physicians, therapists, um, life coaches, peer mentors, uh, getting into other fields where you can still make a big difference, talking with the schools. Um, these are ways in which we can like permeate mental health, you know, even getting into Places like barbershops. I recently did a talk at a at a church, a Pentecostal church, on trying to decrease stigma, and um, it's definitely alive and well there. Um, and I think we have to think about how to talk about mental health in some of these other community-based organizations as well, including faith-based organizations. You know, getting into the churches, getting into barbershops, getting into schools, and trying to normalize it. Yeah. I think that will potentially attract people into the field because right. there's one one thing to ask, you know, I need help. But if there's still that stigma that the people who need help are really scary and kind of dangerous, why would you want to go into that field? And of course, that's that's not the case. I mean, we we sensationalize people who have hurt other people and say they have a mental illness and they, it's danger. Why would you want to go into a field like that? But that's not the majority of cases. So I do, I do think we have to not just normalize mental health, but that it is an incredibly rewarding profession. It is, for me, it is, it is the greatest honor and privilege to be working with someone in their time of need. I mean, what could be more amazing than that? You know? For sure, it is an amazing field. It's very rewarding. Um, to be able to form a connection with somebody and help them therapeutically. And, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to really um, get to know somebody on a deeper level and, and make a difference. And I think when you get somebody that um, you can build that trust with, it allows you to really, really help them. And, and you know, that, that really is what the IM is trying to do. The IM approach is basically saying, we're all doing the best we can. If you don't like it, you can change it. But, you know, we're talking a lot about transitional age youth. 
But the reality is we're always in a potential transition. We're always potentially moving from one part to another, one place to another. But you don't need to think that that, that means you're broken. The I am is saying we're influenced by four domains, your home domain, your social domain, the biological domain of your brain and body, and the I see domain. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? We're interested in what other people think or feel. We call that empathy. But come on, what we really want to know, what are you thinking about me? And that drives us, the need to feel valued. Everybody has the same need. And we can do that for each other. So because these four domains interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. We don't need to change everything. Dr. Torje, what small change can you recommend to our listeners based on our topic for tonight? I think, you know, one thing we can start doing is um, really seeing that uh, we're, we're all in the same boat and, you know, to start recognizing that, um, you know, we're, we're not perfect, right? So um, stop thinking that everything needs to be figured out all at once and be more kind of self-compassionate. And I, I think by viewing yourself as, uh, you know, imperfect and understanding that like, you know, we need to, to be able to accept help. I think that's a small change that we can make is understanding that we're, we're all vulnerable in our own ways. And, by viewing ourselves as more vulnerable in certain ways, we're more likely to accept help. So I think the small change is really just um, being able to view ourselves in a way that allows us to accept that help. And, and I, I agree. I think, you know, it, it's saying you're doing the best you can. I mean, this is your current maximum potential. If you don't like it, you can change it. It's interesting that, that imperfect also begins with I am, you know. Maybe that's just a coincidence, but it's also, I am perfect. But it doesn't mean that you have to be the best at everything. It doesn't mean that in every one of the domains, if you're not the best, then somebody else is. That's not what the I am is about. It's saying relax. It is more important to be reflective than reflexive, more rewarding to wonder than to worry. Here are the domains. Here's your roadmap. So I agree. I think that, you know, that small change of saying it's, it's okay to be who you are. That doesn't mean that, that you're a failure. When you're vulnerable, more likely than not, there's somebody there to help you. And that's huge for us in our society. We, we don't like to ask for help. You know, because we worry people will see us as broken, less valuable. Exactly. So, yeah, I think that's a really important small change that we can make. The second, the second truth of the I am, because everyone's interested in what you think or feel about them, which has an effect on their biological domain, because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. And you are part of someone's home or social domain. This means you control no one but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Stephen Torget, what kind of influence do you want to be? 
kind of influence do, do I want to be on others? Take your choice. I'm a psychiatrist. I get to ask these open-ended questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, the kind of influence that I want to be or, or have um, is one in which um, I'm kind of like, you know, uh, a mentor to some, not to everybody, but to some um, and to enough people to really be able to make a difference in their lives. Um, and I think that uh, I used to think that like everyone I interacted with or you know, my patients that I would need to be able to help all of them, and uplift them. Um, but I think the reality is that um, having, you know, sometimes a small influence can be really, really impactful on somebody's life. And um, sometimes you, you're really helping somebody a lot more than you think simply by being there with them and hanging in there with them, you know, therapeutically. And um, I, I think that's the kind of influence that I want to have is sort of sort of long-term influence. That's why I'm so interested in psychotherapy is because I like having those longitudinal relationships with people where we're kind of building something great over time, whether it's supportive or uh, cognitive behavioral. Um, and it's kind of why I, I like working with, um, with this population as well, because you can, you can really help them launch. And uh, so I like having that positive therapeutic uh, relationship. And, and that's kind of the type of influence that uh, I like to have. My guess is that you've been influencing many people, not just Danny. What's that like for you to realize that that's happening? Um, it's, it's really rewarding, you know, like you can't put a price on that. And, and I think that um, that's what, keeps me going back on some of those longer days, you know, when you're tired or sleep deprived or, you know, I have a, a newborn at home now. Well, she's technically 11 months now. And Congratulations. So, so thanks. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I just need to be back at home right now. But I'm like, still, you know, seeing someone late into the evening and I'm like, you know, this is, this is great. You know, I'm learning about how to really work with somebody and I'm making a difference in their lives. And um, you get a lot out of that, too, especially when you see that they're starting to appreciate it, too, and that it is making a difference, uh, even if it's a, a small difference. And uh, I, I, I get satisfaction out of that. Um, I think that's, that's, that's really powerful, you know, and you don't get to see that in a lot of other fields. You know, the reality about human beings about wanting to feel valued. We spend a lot of time increasing our value by decreasing somebody else's. And then we're astonished the other person does the same, the other group does the same, the other country. But with the I am, and just with who we are as humans, at every and any moment, we can remind someone of their value. And whenever you remind someone of their, their value, you increase your own value. And I, I really think that's what we do in this field. Every person who's come to see someone like us on some level feels less valuable. And we just have that remarkable opportunity and privilege of simply reminding them of their value. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah. It's really cool, you know, uh, increasing their value and, and letting them know that they have value and that they bring value. Uh, it's huge. Uh, and I, you know, 
I, I see someone for therapy myself. And it took me a while to, to be able to do that, um, to kind of accept that and understand that it was helpful, even being a psychiatrist. But I think part of the reason it works is because of exactly what you said, Dr. Jelly, you know, there's a way in which it builds value and helps me see the value in myself and in others. That's who we are as human beings. We have that potential to do that at any and every moment. That's what we're trying to do here on the Dr. Joe Show. To remind you of your value, folks. You don't need to be perfect. You're in an I am. Dr. Stephen Turgey, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Really appreciate it. It's been awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks Tom, for having me. It's a pleasure. Tom, Mark, I will see you next week. Good night, everyone. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.